Hey, everybody, and welcome to Celebrating the Brand Ambassador, where we get down and dirty and reveal the secrets of some of the most outstanding career brand ambassadors, innovators, and brand owners in the cocktail industry. I'm your host, Elaine Duff, and if you like what you hear, please subscribe. Now let's get right into it and meet the personalities behind the brands you love. Welcome, everybody, to episode 26 of Celebrating the Brand Ambassador. I can't believe I started this back in November, and it's been really exciting watching as the the industry has been changing as we're going forward. Every single month, it's been like a new development, which is a lot of fun. I feel really excited for us, and, and I feel bad because I know we're like two months ahead of everybody else. I'm really excited to have here today Camille Austin from La Loba and Kitty Ammon from, I always pronounce here, I always say Armin, but it's Ammon. I just realized. Uh, like, I always yeah, it's An fine. R in your name for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> like forever. Like it's always been A-R-M-A-N-N. -N. I'm like, wow, I've been doing it wrong. And from Uncle Nearest, I'm really excited. It was so much fun catching up both of you ladies. We have so many great stories to share today. <laughs> So first, I start always the same question for everybody. So Camille, I'll start with you. So what is your current role and your responsibilities in that role? Which I know is always a loaded question because our jobs are so vast. But go try to do it. Go for it. It is. But I'll go for it. I'll give you the resumed version. My current role is a director of advocacy for a Mexican spirits company called Casa Lumbre, which means the house of fire. We actually created the brands Mezcal Montelobos and Ancho Reyes. So those are the original brands that I worked with in different capacities, but sort of my baby per se was Montelobos for many years. I started as the U.S. ambassador for that brand and then moved on to be the global ambassador. And now I'm working on our whole portfolio. We've since launched a few new brands that I have behind me, Mexican ancestral corn whiskey, corn liqueur, some more mezcal, more things coming, but I work on the whole portfolio now. Very exciting stuff. And Kitty, Aman, yeah. now I'm saying your name, I mean, Armin for years, I mean, for a million years, so I am just apologizing now. Uh, uh, <laughs> what is your role? So my title is... My title is Uncle Nearest Brand Steward, and my territory is Massachusetts and New Hampshire. So I guess in that role, just to give you some more detail, I it's a blend of sales and marketing. That's usually how I describe it to folks, which I know we'll get into a little bit later with the questions. But yeah, those are my territories. I spread the story of Uncle Nearest and sell a bunch of whiskey every day. I love it. I absolutely <laughs> love it. All right. So but you both now we get the chance to expand with my second question, because you both have some interesting stories and journeys of like within the industry. And, you know, so I'd love to hear a little bit of your backstories and what eventually led you to your current role. So just share a bit of your journey with us and, you know, why you made the final plunge into this current position that you have now. Camille, I'll, I'll start with you. Sure. Well, it's a really interesting story. I, I have a, a very similar story of most brand ambassadors. I started as a bartender, then worked my way up and sort of learned how to manage bar programs. And through sort of the programs you worked through, I mean, you worked at some pretty stellar places. Yes, it was my focus was always on or my background rather was always in restaurant bar programs. So I actually thinking back. I, I spent most of my time in restaurant bars versus cocktail bars, but I worked for Hakkasan Group for many years. I opened the one in Miami, moved to New York to open that one, and I also worked for Soho House Group. And through hospitality, I think I was, 
I think I was a good, solid bartender. I'm very organized and methodical, and I was passionate about the drinks. But what I think I was really great at is is that hospitality element. I was a host, a really great host. Mm-hmm. So I met I met the the founders of of the company that I currently work for, Danny and Moy. A little over ten years ago, they were my regulars at Hakkasan. So they were actually coming to visit me with the the first brand that they launched, which was Milagro Tequila. <laughs> and they just continued to come and visit me. And I, I grew, I ended up over time growing a friendship with them. When I moved to New York, they would come and, you know, have dinner and support me and hang for drinks. And that's sort of how I got into ambassadorship with Montelobos was when they were ready to launch their next brand, which was Mezcal Montelobos, that they partnered with Ivan Saldana on. They approached me to be their ambassador. And then the sort of you know, professional relationships started growing. And and here I am almost eight and a half years later. Wow. Yeah. And you did have an interesting journey. I mean, through that, I mean, working for William, well, well, I guess we'll go into it a little bit because you went to William Grants and things of that nature. So we'll definitely love to hear more about that. And Kitty, your background, because you didn't come from the bar industry originally. I did. Well, I, well, I was not a bartender though. I didn't, I didn't. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. So it's really interesting. I, I, was working in hospitality my whole entire life, like since I could get a job, right? 16 years old, I was like, I'm going to be a waitress. Or, well, I was a busser at first and I was terrible. <laughs> my daughter's um, a busser right now. She just got oh her God. first job as a busser at a diner in the Hamptons. Oh, so oh again, my God, I she love already it. has some good stories. <laughs> oh my God. In the Hamptons, I can only guess that's hysterical. Yeah. But I did that. So I, I worked in publishing. I, I had other careers, right? So I worked in publishing. I also worked in PR. And, but I always had to waitress and bartend to make ends meet. So it ended up mostly being on the floor because I, the places where I worked, I made more money there, right? Like it was something, and that's kind of how I stuck. But I also, through that, I met Misty Kalkofen, who is my really good friend, who some of you might know, as well as a few other bar ladies in Boston that you folks might know. And she was starting a group called LUPEC, which stands for Ladies United for the Preservation of Endangered Cocktails. This was back in 2007. And at, to that point, you remember, yes, you were founding Remember New York. I remember. New York's first, New York's chapter, we were like, yeah, yeah, yeah it was amazing. <laughs> we had so much fun. But for me, it was like one of those things where I had been working in restaurants forever, but I had, and then we had like wine trainings and stuff like that, but I wasn't super educated about booze or about cocktails. So it was just such a wonderful place to be learning about all of that stuff and it kind of coincided with me wanting to change my career a little bit and do more writing. I had done publishing. So I started a blog. Remember blogs? Um, <laughs> what do people do now instead of blogging? How by much the way? Work. Like, it, it, like is Instagram, it newsletters? Yes. I think, yeah, I think it's, it's just Instagram. Nobody writes anymore. Podcasting. <laughs> people are still writing. I don't know. It's, it's kind of crazy. Newsletters. Right? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's so much work. Uh, it's so much work. So yeah, it was so much work, but I really wanted to kind of get more writing credits and I was fascinated by cocktail history, et cetera, et cetera. So that was kind of always understood with my friend group. And then I started over time, similar to your story, Camille, I, I, I just started like going to these events, you know, like Pernod Ricard would throw like a gin event and I would go to that. And then I'd be like over here, like this Bacardi thing or whatever. And I just kept like just to learn, like it wasn't even like, you know, and also just a great way to try new products and things like that. And through that, I got my first job on the brand side. I met a woman named Jessica Sparks, who was like, look, look, we're hiring here for a Plymouth Gin brand ambassador. And I was like, I don't understand what you're talking about. You're going to pay me to go tell people to drink the gin that I already (laughs) tell them to drink. 
Exactly. And they're always like, what? Yeah. This seems like a dream job. Oh, for sure. And also, like, if I'd known when I was 21 that, like, they or any age, like, whatever, that there were jobs like this or on that side of the business, who knows? I could be, like, running a whole company. <laughs> you know? There's, it's never too late. It is never too late. I know. Look at you. Like, follow your dreams. <laughs> yeah. So I did that. And then I worked for a few different brands. I worked for Finette Branca. I was a consultant for a little while, worked with you, of course, with some projects. And then the Uncle Mears position opened up in 2019. And through a former boss of mine, as well as some friends at the distributor, I ended up meeting Fawn and just being like, I have to work for this company. And it was timing. It's always timing. It was definitely timing and connections. <laughs> it is really always timing. And I definitely want to dive into like, you know, about working for Uncle Nearest. But Camille, I also want to talk a little bit because for you, it's like such a great example. Like you met two regulars and you must have impressed them that much that like, and you stayed in contact with them for over years. Like they would, they would find you in different places that they were like, this person needs to work with you. And, and that shows a big thing because I'm, and we're going to talk about this later about building a personal brand, but how you represent yourself in all stages of your career really can have repercussions down the line, positive or not positive. Like if people know you as being so much of a party person and you're always like, you know, just getting into trouble or whatever, it's really hard for them to take you seriously later on. Like when you do get your shit together, that's like on the opposite. And then to the other effect, you are good at what you do and you take your job seriously. I'm not saying we can't party and have a great time because I think all of us ladies can do that, but you left a good enough impression that they were like, yep, this is our person. Like we're going to take her wherever we go. And obviously they must have gave you a good impression as well. Yeah. I, I think it's very parallel to what Kitty was just saying that, you know, it goes back to the fact that we're in a relationship based business and that can evolve in so many different ways, but it just really stemmed from, you know, a, a friendship and I'm, I'm Mexican American. So I, I found sort of a really great connection and the friendship with them. And, you know, they were back then Mexican entrepreneurs that were starting, they did not come from the spirits business. They, oh, wow. had, you know, made a lot of mistakes and learned along the way and then got to a point where they were becoming really successful with their first brand. But something that I, I sort of noticed even back then when they were my regulars, which was their, their entrepreneurial spirit. And they were always visionaries even back then. And it's something that I've always also had is that sort of drive to learn more and to better myself. So I am definitely thankful that when I was a buyer, I always, most of the time I was really <laughs> sort of good on my word and I would bring in the brands that I said I would, and I would, you know, menu place, whatever I said I would. And and or whatever I could. And that definitely comes back around, especially when you're absolutely, you know, like, like what Kitty's doing, I, I work a little bit more distant with sales, but it's all intertwined in some way. So when you're on this side of the brand, and you're doing sales and marketing, or advocacy, you know, mm -hmm. it, it definitely comes back around. It, it does, right? Because it's like building great, like keeping, you know, I think one of the best practices that you know, I've heard time and time again, and I've definitely shared is that, you know, you don't make promises you can't keep and, and, and stay true to your word. Like if you say something, follow through, even if it's sometimes like, you know what, man, I fucked up. I should never have told you I could do that. You know, I spoke above, but like, you know, don't just ghost somebody and just disappear because people remember that. Like accounts remember that, bosses remember that, your friends remember that. 
dating people remember <laughs> it's, it's just it's just not it's not a good practice in life it's like you know just have the conversation be honest and sometimes you have to be humble and say i just fucked up and it's always a better policy than in so many other ways so and building on your lady as you said keeping true to what you were doing i mean nobody's perfect but that's your majority of the time. Like people know that about you and that's something that like that person's reliable. I'm sure Kitty, you know, I know you have that reputation. Like, you know, it's like Kitty's reliable. She, you know, she's going to show up. She's going to do the job and that's half the battle showing the fuck up. Sorry, I'm going to curse today. Showing the fuck up, (laughs) but it's true. Right. And don't be a dick. Those are like my two number one rules in life. Like just those two things, you're going to get far. (laughs) It's amazing. That's good advice. (laughs) <laughs> I think so. All right. So, all right. So Kitty, I do want to dive now into working for Uncle Nearest because, you know, I think what Uncle Nearest is doing is quite revolutionary, right? So they have an entire female executive team. The team you're working with is extremely diverse. You said it was one of the most diverse group of people you ever work with. Work with. Your team, the entire company is led by a very formidable Juan Weaver, which I'm like, idolize her. So tell us a little more, like, what is it like working with Fawn and why do you believe, like, what is her philosophy? What do you think her philosophy is about the people that she hires and puts, you know, and how she's put it together? Yeah, I mean, Fawn is incredible. I'll just say that from the jump. And I don't want to sound like an acolyte in a creepy way. (laughs) (laughs) I I already did. I was like, I'm a fan. I'm a fan girl. I'm going to admit it, throw it out there. Yes, and I'll just put it out there right now. If anybody's curious about Uncle Nearest or, you know, anytime you have a chance to hear Fawn speak, she's incredible. She's one of these just really visionary folks. Yeah, yeah, it's good. And she also tells you things like the story of our brand and our company, like there's a lot of story, right? So I always take the opportunity to, even though I speak with her often to, you know, because I I, sometimes I'll learn something that I didn't know before. I'll be like taking notes. But it's incredible. So she's she's not from whiskey, right? She's a woman who discovered the story of Uncle Nearest through the New York Times article that most of us also probably saw in 2016 about how Brown Foreman and Jack Daniel were starting to incorporate the story of Nearest into their telling of the story of Jack, which is, you know, we wouldn't be here without that excavation and that discussion, which is so cool. So she was drawn to it by the storytelling aspect and just, and the woman doesn't hear, she probably hears no, but (laughs) you know, if you think about the amount of no's one might've heard, right? Coming from, not from booze, right? Coming into this business, wanting to champion a story and get out there and everything from just like getting people to make a call back about bottle sizes and things like that. Like, I think there really were a lot of facets about people being in the industry, not necessarily wanting to talk to someone who might not know what they're doing and new, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and the women, and they just pushed through. The whole team just pushed through. They figured it out. And that's what we keep doing. And I think Fawn's big thing is, so I would say about Fawn, working with her, get ready for the ride of your life, right? Get ready to be seen for who you are, like a whole person, which is really, really interesting because I think that in a lot of companies, corporate environments, you have to be the work that you're doing in a bit, a bit, you know, like, Mm -hmm. so when I was first hired, I was both Kitty and I was also a yoga teacher and I was also an author and I was everything like that. I didn't have to kind of segment, which means a lot. Like if you're a person who does a lot of things, like I can, you know, I'll segment if I have to, like I like a paycheck, but I would prefer to be honest, you know, (laughs) and living my life. But I think all of us are also really driven by walking in our purpose, right? So every single day we're cementing the the story of Nearest Green and his legacy and pulling as we climb, which I can talk about now or I can talk about in a little bit, like about how we're trying to really from the industry to the extent that we can 
And, you know, really Fawn's, Fawn, when she speaks about her team, she talks about making your own table, right? So that thing of like, no, no one's ever looked like us before, so we can look like anybody that we want. And we weren't trying to get in. <laughs> <laughs> to the party that, that was already existing. And you've done that before, Elaine, right? We were talking about that the other day about like creating. Well, your own I, I always tell the story. Yeah, I was gonna say I always talk about you know nobody nobody's ever asked me to be on the panel before, like ever, like still to this it's day. Fun. I've been in this industry for twenty years, and I, nobody ever like sends me an email and goes, "Hey, Elaine, do you want to be on our panel to talk about things?" Nope, never. I always every seminar I've ever given is because I've given it. Like I decided when I was like, fuck, if I want to get a seminar at Tales or a seminar at BCB or anywhere, I'm going to have to write it and moderate it and bring my, yeah. the people I want to bring on board. So you got to set your own table. And I tell you, Ian Burrell did the same thing. Ian Burrell, the rum ambassador, yeah. he's like, nobody invited me to rum fest. So I created my own. And then he anointed himself the global rum ambassador. <laughs> and yeah. he's going on today. He's like, I didn't have a table to sit on. So I made my own. And I love that. And I, I love, love that about Fawn. It's amazing. Yeah, I love it. No, I, and I love that. I don't know. Do you have a similar story, Camille? Or yeah, I definitely identify a lot with what you said about walking in your purpose. Because you know, I when I finally sort of began to feel comfortable in my skin as as an ambassador for Montalobos, I am really have always really been into the arts, and I always wanted to study performing arts. So, like, my first passion was musical theater and, and music and all of these things. So I decided to do something different and creative where I could get out those creative ideas that I had inside. And I created a character essentially. And that's mm -hmm. how my alter ego, La Loba Mezcalera, the Mezcal She-Wolf, you know, which was an extension of this brand, which was the personality of this brand. It gave it a voice and it gave it sort of an identity, which was also part of my identity but it was so much fun and so creative for me all the time and every point of the storytelling with that brand. So I think that that's spot on, Kitty. Walk in your purpose, do it authentic, That whatever that means to you, you know? I think that's no, really absolutely. cool. It is really helpful. And to have a company that allows you to do that, because I, I will say, you know, uh -huh. I always share with people, like my biggest struggles of working with Diageo was it was very hard to be me because... Yeah. I, you know, I'm a little rough around the edges. You know, I, I, I play both roles. I can dress and be all pretty and, and, and delicate and, and, you know, and, and elegant if I choose. But most of the time, the true me is like, what the fuck? And that's the personality I am. And, and you know, so finding the balance between the two. And, you know, Diageo very much was like, yeah, so we want you to be you, just a little less you. And I was like, yeah. like so... You know, I had to become, when I did stuff that was on camera, except for Bar Rescue, I was I could be a little more like myself, but when I did things for like Pottery Barn or any of the things that, you know, millions of videos and things that I had to do, I, I took on what I like to say, my Martha Stewart persona, you know, like, hi, my name's Elaine Duff, and we're at the set of Pottery Barn in Hawaii right now, and we're going to be, and then like, I would have this different voice, the way I spoke. I love it. Person, and it was like, yeah, and I would have to be that person all day, and at the end of the day, I was like, oh, like, exhausted, because okay. I'm just like, give me a shot of fucking Jack and a beer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah get me out of here. here. But I mean, I do like being this person. I, I am, I like being elegant. I like being sophisticated, but I also want to be me. And me is a little bit, you know, I'm a little more out there. And it was always a hard balance to kind of sometimes to kind of figure out how to mix those two together. So I love, and I guess we'll jump into it then, Camille, you're talking about the She-Wolf because 
finding your brand identity, right? So bringing your personal brand is such a huge part. If you want to advance in this industry, I think it's, or in any career, I think it's really essential that you, you know, you do obviously the job that you are hired to do and you, you know, promote that brand and build that brand, but you also got to build yourself. You got to build your personal brand and that many times requires you to do things outside of your job and you can tie your role into it. I would say I like to build on the job I'm working on, but you got to decide what that is. You know, for me, I started doing seminars. Biagio never asked me to do a seminar ever. Never asked me to go to, like, it was just, I'm I'm going to tails because we're going to be in part of (laughs) it. Yeah. Like I'm going to do these seminars and they're like, okay, sure. Do those seminars. Like, so it but it was something, you know, it was extra work, but I knew it was what I needed to do to get my name out there into the world, besides just people knowing me from doing Bar Rescue, right? Because I didn't want that to be my legacy of just being on that crappy show. So, you know, but for you, like, you, know, you created, and, and Kitty, I want to talk about, because you wrote a book, you had you brought your publishing back out, you know, and you really utilized that. And Camille, you created this character. So, and your character, from what you explained to me, it worked in two ways. So explain a little bit, we'll expand more, a little bit more about the She-Wolf and how you proposed it to William Grants and like how you like worked with marketing to really make, make it your own and then where it went. And then well, talk about the book. It's interesting. There's actually a saying in Spanish that says it's better to ask for forgiveness than to ask for permission. And that's kind Big of philosophy how- of mine. <laughs> I love that philosophy. And I'm not, I'm not, you know, putting that out there as official advice, but it's sort of how this mm-hmm. uh, this identity sort sort of evolved for me throughout my ambassadorship. I think a couple foundational points to touch on first are mm-hmm. number one that basic making sure that you are working with the bright brand. That for me, that was a tiny, tiny brand that you know nobody knew about or even understood because we were in the point of Mescal's life as a category. This was you know, eight years ago, Mescal was very different then. And, you know, Kitty Misty was one of those first Mescal ambassadors. And even being a female Mescal ambassador at that time was almost non-existent. So to be a brand (coughs) in a square shaped bottle, it's, it's, you know, we had a, a founder who got a PhD in agave and he's, you know, talking about the science versus the romanticism and the culture it it was definitely something that evolved over time. And I think the second piece, aside from having that right brand that is for you is the advantage of being with a tiny brand in a tiny category where you're really part of creating the story of both the category and the brand. So I didn't really ask for permission. We had pesos for a budget. We had tiny, tiny. (laughs) I didn't have, especially that first year and a half, I didn't have a lot of travel So I had to sort of make do with what was coming out of my head and, you know, building the relationship with my brand manager at the time and sort of our tiny team and working closely with the Mexico team to really understand and build the the identity for the brand. And then it sort of started expanding. And I think the third piece, that layer is consistency is key for ambassadorship. You know, you really it's a slow grow. This is advocacy. It takes time. It's not immediate like. I go and I have a rock star meeting and I got a menu placement out of it. This is something that you have to be consistent with, follow up with, and really nurture. And we gave that great analogy that comes from my friend, Jen Marshall, that I love. She's like, okay, I'm, she says, okay, mommy, I'm going to go and water some plants. 
some plants need a little bit more water than others and you know they'll they'll be great and flourish and then other plants need so much water and they'll take a really long time to grow you know so it's really about that it's it's a it was it was a slow grow and a build up where we got to the point where it became this complete character because first it was a nickname then it was a character and then when we when social media storytelling started becoming a thing at that point, I was also on the William Brandt team who, you know, I mean, Charlotte and that ambassador team, I learned so much from. They were our original U.S. importer. And it was just really all about creativity and owning yourself. So I, I started becoming more in tune of mezcal culture and sayings. And I wanted to portray that mysticism and romanticism. That's what came authentically to me, to my core and to my heart. That's what made me fall in love with mezcal, you know? So I wanted to share that. And I started learning more about wolves and I started finding all of these parallels. And I, I said, wow, I'm kind of like a wolf, you know? I'm <laughs> sort of a loner, but I can move in a pack. And how does this, you know, come to life in a physical form? Well, let's get a wolf mask and let's howl. And when we pour mezcal, we'll say, oh, you know? So it's it sort of was a thing that grew over time. And and I haven't worked directly with Montel. I mean, I still help, you know, the Montelobos transition and everything loosely, but I haven't worked directly on the brand for over two years and people will not stop calling me La Loba. And I think that's okay, you know? Yeah, I, I think that's I great. That. And I, I think that's a great example. And Eric's, I know if you're still listening, I hope you are, because he's, Eric. you know, the, you know <laughs> the William Grant team is also really good. So one thing I, I really enjoyed, I've had many people from William Grant's on the show and you know and i've spoken to charlotte about this we did a seminar on brand ambassadors last year at tales and it was a like you know, how did she hire people and i just love the story like when they bring people on they make you do a presentation not about the brand but about something you're passionate about and they're more about making sure that you fit the, the personality of the brand than it is about like any other skill it's like are you the right fit are you the right quirkiness or whatever quirkiness that brand might exude they want to make sure that you're the right fit and then they want you to own it and i think that's really really incredible and it sounds for you kitty that's exactly what they're also doing you know at uncle nearest they're allowing you to kind of be your whole person so you know i was gonna say you can talk, expand more on the uncle nearest and like how they do that and also i'd love you to talk about your book because i think that's also a big thing for you it's like doing things outside your you know doing other things like writing a book or doing Instagram stories, whatever it is, is a great way of building your personal brand and putting yourself out there. So talk about Uncle Nearest, how you get to be yourself and also talk about the book. Yeah. Well, I'll, and drinking like ladies. Yes. Yeah, so the book right behind me. So the book itself, I actually sort of laid out the structure when I talked about blogging, right? So that was my entree into freelance writing credits. What I thought would be a fantastic career as a freelance writer. turns out that job is really hard. <laughs> It's mostly pitching and it doesn't pay that well. So hence waitressing and bartending. But the it was through a friend, again, coming back to this idea of relationships and contacts. It was a friend of mine who came to me and Misty very early on, like 2007, when we were still blogging and was like, I think this could be a great book. And we were just over the moon excited. I had worked in publishing. I had the very inglorious job of reading the slush pile, which is looking through all proposals that come in and pitches and stuff like that. So I knew my way around all of that stuff. And so I wrote a proposal. Yeah, I, I mean, if anybody needs help, I'm your girl at any point. <laughs> <laughs> you heard that so, first. Kitty, I know. Kitty's first. 
I'm suddenly going to get all these proposals coming. I know. I could you imagine? I'm like, oh. uh, <laughs> so we worked on that. And then we started the woman who at the time, who was a friend of mine is Danielle Chiotti. And she was a editor, pitched her team and they rejected the book. She was like, we were like this close, like razor thin. And then there was someone on the publishing board that was like, I don't really drink. Like, I don't really get it. And like, that was the end. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And like, that's how it goes. And so, yeah, it's heartbreaking, but it's also part of it. I think any sort of creative, creative pursuit, you have a lot of that rejection built in and baked in, but we went on and pitched and Danielle eventually became an agent. And so she's our agent now. And she pitched the book for 10 years. Like she was pitching it wow. and pitching it and pitching it. Not constantly, not every single day, I don't think, because she had no, all the contracts. Like <laughs> right? <laughs> but it was a lot of rejection. A lot of, we heard a lot of like, you know, I don't get women in cocktails. That was wow. said to us. Really? <laughs> I don't get women's right. I don't get women's history in cocktails, which I can kind of see because, I mean, it's the people who like it like it. But I can see how if you're just looking for straight up cocktail books, I get that. But it was it was kind of shocking some of the rejections. And I, I always say like if you hear no, hi oh hi Kai, if you hear no enough times and that your idea isn't great enough times or it just isn't isn't like gonna make the cut, like you can start to really internalize that and believe it. And I, I always like, I always carried a torch for the book. I think Misty thought it was never going to happen, maybe candidly. But in 2017, that February, I was like lounging on the couch on a Saturday, wicked bored. It was like snowing or something. And I looked at this old email address that was connected to the Lupac blog that I hadn't checked in like years and done anything on in years. And it was an editor who became our editor who was like, I found your blog. I think there might be a book there. And my joke, wow. my joke about the book is that, I mean, I love it. I'm so excited and so thrilled by the success, but why now? Right. Why now? Like, why now? Like, I'll take it, but why now? And uh, yeah. very plain, plainly what we were told. Because the industry changed, the world changed. I mean, like, you know, women that, drinking yes, and women in the industry became more, it's, it's now just normal. Normal, then, 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 yeah. Then the exception, which is great. Absolutely, and the and our editor, I mean, our agent was very plain. She was it was post the Trump election. I don't want to get into politics, but I will say what I was told was that women's publishers were interested in women's voices. Ah, and okay. that was interesting too. Because <laughs> but it doesn't matter because you kept it out there. <laughs> if it if it didn't stay out there, then you know, yeah. then you know, that wouldn't hit time. And sometimes maybe that's also a story too. It's also about the fact that like, you know, at first you don't succeed, try, try again. Oh, because 100%. sometimes you, you don't. Like I think about the first time yeah. I pitched my boss, when I said to my boss, now I, and most people don't realize I come from the event side of the business. I was the event manager for US Concepts, managing all of Diageo's events. And then I was the luxury, like I did all the luxury events of so all the sponsorship deals for like Ciroc and Don Julio around the country. And then I became the account manager for Ciroc, Don Julio, and created their very first brand ambassador program, which was shit. That's so crazy. So this is 18 years ago, right? It was 2005, right? 2006. And I, I decided one day, I was like, I realized I, I really wanted to make a change. I really want, I really enjoyed education more. I really loved that part of the job and I, I cocktails becoming a thing. And I met Steve Olson and I was like, I want to do what that guy does. Cause I also saw how much yeah. money we paid him. I was like, fuck, we pay that man a lot, you know? And I was like, I want to do that guy's job. And I yeah. pitched my boss and he said, no, you know? And I was like, mm-hmm. you know, we sat down for that meeting you know, and I'm sure you've all been in this meeting where it's like, okay, so where do you see yourself in five years? Like, you know, what do you want to do next? And 
And I said, I, and I pitched the job. I was like, I want to be Diageo's head mixologist and, and educator. And they were like, what? What the hell is that? No, no, that's not going to happen. And it took a year and a half where two bosses, like, you know, moved through that position. And when I finally pitched to Michael Stoner, who was the, running the brand ambassador program for the Masters of Whiskey, he was like, hell yeah, let's do it. He's like, Elaine, what do you need? Like, I can totally see you doing that job and bar five had just oh, started. So he's like, set me to bar five and all that kind of stuff. But sometimes you just have to keep pushing yes. it and doing, and doing the work, yeah. you know, and doing and the work. timing is huge. Because if our book timing had been published in 20, 2014 or whatever time, like it would have, who knows if it would, would have done anything. Like people might not have bought it. Like Publishers aren't usually, they know things. Like they're not like... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Hi, Peter Zimmerman. Oh, it was the coolest, honey. <laughs> Stay tuned. There might be an Uncle Nearest mini. <laughs> that would be fun. Uh, that would be fun. But what has the book done for your career? Like doing that, like what it like, you know, once it was out there, obviously, you know, once it launched, you get known much more, right? Suddenly you're, on, you're in magazines, like people start to get to you know. So what did it do for your career? Yeah, it was, I mean, it's been great. It definitely solidified, like, any connection that Misty and I would have had to women and cocktails and women in spirits, which, I mean, as women in spirits, you, you all are in the same boat, right? I'm sure we get tapped to speak all the time and to think about that stuff. So I would say generally, if someone's looking to establish themselves as an authority in something, writing a book is a good idea, right? And you might have to start with a blog. <laughs> or a newsletter. <laughs> or a newsletter, yes. Or Instagram yeah. posts. I, I don't know. But I would say, you know, like, that's been really incredible. I, like, the work, like, the actual creative process was, like, a great joy of my life. Like, it was basically sitting and thinking about these unsung women in history. And then I'm not sure if it's clear from the titling, but we worked with working female bartenders from all over the world. And this is another thing where timing is cool because it was through social media and networks and networking. And my network wasn't that big in 2007. But in 2017, like we were able to reach women in Estonia and Latvia and Ghana. And actually, we were wow. a lot of women from Australia, which is so cool. <laughs> oh, yeah. They take bartending so seriously. Cool. I mean, everybody does. Oh but they, are, they are competitive. <laughs> yes. Let's get a trip. I want to go there. I just, just oh, yeah. go no, it's... with them all. But when they actually so, open their borders again, I believe they're still hey, can we down. go? They're yeah, like, no, absolutely. no Americans. Yeah. yeah, they really don't want anybody. They're like, nobody. They, they, their own countrymen are stuck out of their country at the moment. But we won't get time into that. No, that's amazing. And, you know, both of you things are building. Like, you created the personality, Camille, like the wool. And that, I'm sure, like, escalated your people got to know you and that. You said that somebody at a trade show came over to you. Was somebody from Hennessy that made a comment to you about the, about the howl? What did they say? Well, it was basically a global brand director from Hennessy at the time. This was several years ago. He came over and said, I just wanted to tell you that I am floored with the fact that you have a sound that you make and when, you know, everybody will turn around and know that it's your brand, which was the wolf howl. You know, we started howling, pouring Mount Mezcal, and people knew that it was the Montalobos Cruz. Awesome. It's sort of, you know, Ivan Saldana told me once, we're in the business of telling stories and making great drinks is just a part of it. So I think the lesson from that is to pull really how you're going to tell the story. You know, and we all have different ways of telling them. And that was that was my sort of authentic, purposeful way of, of telling my story. No, I think that actually I would love you to expand on that because it is, you know, when you get into the role 
you, you, you know, especially a new brand advisor, you look around and you're like, there's so many amazing people, right? It's like, you know, there's so many amazing people doing this job, you know, and, and, and especially, you know, and maybe you're becoming a mixologist and you're like, I can never compete with those guys or I can't do that, you know, and, and it can be intimidating. It can make you feel like have doubts about yourself and what you can bring to the category. And I think we talked about yesterday, it's like, you, you can't be somebody else. You have to bring your own personality. It took me years to figure that one out. Like I have to like bring it. it I just got to be my own person. And it's like, I'm never going to be able to compete with some of the big mixologists out there because I don't work behind a bar. I, I work behind mm-hmm. Diageo's bar. And so, yeah. you know, and I, you know, I can only learn so many techniques and I, I just make yummy, delicious drinks. They're not complicated. They're not, nothing in my move, but they sell. That's what they do. And I had to be mm-hmm. comfortable with that and not feel like I was a fraud. Like, oh my God, why aren't I doing these advanced things? And I'm like, it's not who I am and I don't have the time to learn that. I just, I, cause I'm not in that atmosphere enough. And I had to learn to be happy with that and just make that my personality. This is what I do. Like I do spirits education and I do bar education, but I, this is my thing. And for you, Camille, you sound like you found your personality because you were working with the a maestro, a maestro who is a scientist in the world of agave, which is like, how do you compete with that? And so you yeah. didn't. That, that was very intimidating at the beginning, to be honest. And it was, you know, I the the people that I knew were our our other co-founders, the founders of the company, Danny and Moy. And then Yvonne came on later with the Mescal project. So I didn't know Yvonne. I didn't have like the he wasn't my regular before. So I had to build up a relationship with him and sort of understand how I could complement with my skills and understand that point too. I think that's also something really key with ambassadorship that not, you know, many times companies will turn in a script and say, this is the brand identity. This is what the brand script is, feel, you know, this is the five minute, two minute, 10 minute, whatever, or the story. And I, I, I like to challenge that with our team because it's really important because I lived it for every single one of our ambassadors to feel like they're part of writing the story. I was also very fortunate because I had a team around me with Yvonne and with Charlotte and, you know, like with everybody that, that we had, they were open to that. They, they wanted to hear because they didn't, if, if I wasn't close to Mescal, they were going to be even, you know, further. So I think when I understood that, my niche and my expertise and talent was in the experiential side of it to complement Yvonne and that I didn't have to be Yvonne Saldana talking about, you know, the, the original genus of agave and these sort of things. Of course, I learned it because I, I listened to his voice for, you know, almost six years in countless seminars and I learned so much from him and I still learned so much. But I think it's it's about that. It's about really, you know, learning what you can bring to the table and how you're going to really blow that up. No, absolutely. And I don't know if you have Kitty. Do you want to expand on that at all? I mean, you've had to represent different types of brands. I mean, Fernet. I mean, you know, and now Uncle Nearest. You know, you're yeah. the expert, and you can't be an expert in everything, right? So it's like mm-hmm. finding, like, you know, you know, you do have to. Do the do the word, but find out where you're comfortable and like what you want to talk about. But Kitty, I don't know how how you handle working for you know different amaros and whiskeys. Yeah, I mean it's been so different. I would say what the first thing that came to mind when you spoke about being like who you are and accepting what you don't know was when I started working with Uncle Nearest in Boston because I started to really realize how segregated our city was. For example. 
Right. So mm-hmm. then I had to think about like, and I brought a lot of like guilt and shame to that. Like, I don't know who are the black owners. Like, I don't know who the brand isn't mm-hmm. pigeonholed to be for any particular person. Right. But I was like, right. this is a story. I don't know if people in Boston know it. Where can I go? What do I do? And I, I didn't know what I didn't know. I got to a moment where I was just like, I don't know what I don't know. <laughs> I go to pasta bars. Let's talk about like, I had thought about the demographic and the, and the, the, you know, sort of what was going on in the, in the bar room, I think in a more cerebral way, but never in a very like practical way in terms of like bars. A lot of the mixology bars are very, very white, right? There's like, mm-hmm. we all know this, the breakdown, et cetera. So I had a lot of like humility. I had to have a lot of humility around this. And then I also, I, I started doing my research and like looking around and it wasn't until the Boston Black Hospitality Coalition was formed that I realized that there was a very good reason that I didn't know who owned what, because there are only eight liquor licenses in Boston that are African-American and black owned. Wow. Eight. Wow. Eight. Out of 1,200, eight. Eight. Wow. <laughs> So, wow. you know, but, I have a lot of grace. Like I have a lot of customers that love the brand and that have become my friends. And then I've also just done a ton of my own research about the city, about systemic racism, about the history of like who was permitted to own and buy and things of that nature. Because you think of, I mean, there's the way that we perceive different regions of the country and who has access to what, but it was a, it was a pretty big, I mean, that's been pretty interesting to me. That's um, incredible. Yeah, it was a big, but I had to have that moment lane where I was just like, you can't know what you don't know. Like you're, yeah. you might mess up, you might offend someone, they might be like, but, but right. the more I asked my white friends, the less information I got, no one knew where to go. No yeah. one knew. <laughs> the distributor wasn't like, this is an amazing, you know what I mean? Like I had to, and there's a very good reason for that, which is much, much, much bigger than this, than this spot. No, but I think that's incredible. And the fact that if every brand ambassador for Uncle is doing that research about their own city, that could be, oh my God, that could be an incredible thing. Like the, the amount of knowledge that could be consolidated, but also how to have those conversations because they are important conversations to have. So good for you for like, because you have to be brave to be able yeah. to, to go into a place that you've never entered before and to explore a new world and to admit things you don't know. And it's like, I might yeah. not do this correctly, but so work with me here. So I think that's really commendable. A lot of grace. Okay. <laughs> oh, uh, we love Kitty Lowe. Who doesn't love Kitty? Yeah. All right. So Kitty, let's talk about that also, because we talked about, actually, Camille, we'll go back and then Kitty, we're going to talk about sales. This Kitty, I mean, Camille, your current role, you have to work alongside your marketing team a lot. And, you know, you, from what you described yesterday is that you have a really a collaborative approach, which I think is really exciting. Can, can you share with us, like, who's part of this team that you work with and, you know, how the process works and why do you think it, it's such a great way of working? Definitely. In our, in our U.S. team right now, we have about six brand managers, a combination of our existing projects and upcoming projects. And then we have in Mexico about four brand managers, uh, a, a CMO, a chief marketing officer as well, who sort of looks after the global brand launches, which... It's really interesting because on a global scale, it's the U.S. market and then Mexico and rest of the world is very, very tiny still. It sort of goes to show you, you know, the differences in our drinking culture, but and taxes and, and so many complex things. But what I really love about sort of where we've gotten to and I think the direction that we're going into is exactly that. I like positioning with our team this analogy of, you know, what we're trying to do is not just build a flimsy building that is going to, you know, wash away with a, a big natural disaster or, or whatever it may be. We're trying to 
build a monument that's going to withstand the test of time. And if you have the foundation, the foundation, I like to say that that foundation is marketing, right? It's our, it's our vision, our plan for this brand, the DNA, the health, and the growth, and the path that it's going to take. Then you have the bricks that you have to put up. And the bricks, that would be commercial, right? Without our commercial team going out and getting those placements and building that brand health, we can't, you know, sort of continue to go toward that monument of this vision of this vision of this monument. And then you have the mortar, that glue that keeps everything <laughs> together, that's seeped into everything, that's advocacy. And that is what is going to build your monument that is going to last for hundreds of years, right? So I don't look at advocacy just as trade advocacy. It's in everything. You have internal advocacy. You have to advocate and engage your marketing team, your agencies, your PR, you know, your social, your commercial team, your distributors. It's everything. Advocacy is literally in everything. And, it, and there's also commercial advocacy and marketing advocacy that I don't do directly, but that the marketing team does. So what we do at the end of the year, we all put our heads together and we start each individually working on our piece of the draft. And then we do the first brainstorm and we say, okay, given our learning. The draft on what? The draft, the draft on what? The brand plans. And this is done for each brand. And we come together using each our sort of perspective and, and area of expertise. Mine is out in the field and, and advocacy. And then we present our first draft of giving our learnings from last year. And I don't mean just learnings on the brand. I mean, learning in, a, we just had a year and a half where we learned so many things. And we were talking about this also, Elaine, that marketing is never going to be the same again. And you yeah. touched briefly also, Kitty, on this, is that if we do approach it the same way that, that we did several years ago, we would be doing ourselves a disservice because we're living in a different world, right? So it really is about tapping into our resources, both internal and then finding those external that we don't have internally to continue educating ourselves, to be really thoughtful in a 360 vision. And that's sort of how the process that we take to building out our plan. Then the brand manager comes in, puts that second draft in, you know, puts all those pieces together what are the commercial goals and how are we going to achieve them? What are the advocacy goals and how are we going to achieve them? And then together we start shaving things off and giving it form. And it's just worked wonders to work as a team to build that. We're all part yeah, that of makes, That makes awesome. a lot of sense because the advocacy, you know, I think some people overlook it sometimes, you know, the fact that it's being built into the actual marketing plans and how they can execute. I mean, I think it's always part of it, but it's the fact that you are an integral part of the brand planning is is so so important and so collaborative and also the amount of ideas that probably are developed because you guys are all sharing and you're not finalizing the concept you're just coming in with like you know this is these are my ideas and it's kind of loose so i'm going to present them and then you probably take when you find some good ones and like you build upon them i'm, I'm assuming right totally totally absolutely which is it's such a it's such a great way of working i mean Kitty, I, I, it sounds like there's a lot of collaboration that's happening. I know Uncle Nearest is still new, like all the team is still working together. So I don't know if we've gotten to that stage yet. Where are, Does all the brand ambassadors have like monthly meetings or any of that thing to share best ideas or anything yet? So I will say something interesting happened right when the pandemic started, where we all like were tasked with coming up with our own marketing plan for the brand. Okay. It, was, it was wild. And... <laughs> 
I took myself to marketing university and I think I was maybe supposed to write a market plan. Like, I don't really know. My boyfriend was teasing me. He was like, you think it was 13 pages. Nobody read it. Like, (laughs) (laughs) Nope. He's he's totally right. No, but it was, it was, we all had a chance to like view everybody's work and it was a wild thing. It was like one of those crazy things that you did right when the pandemic happened where you're just like, I don't really know the next step and how are we going to do that? But we were able to pull from, we kind of all voted on what we thought would were the coolest ideas or the best ideas and worked those into our plan for the rest of the balance of the pandemic, at least, and and going forward as well, too. So that was really cool. I think in general, we try to share as much as we can. We were just at a big sales meeting in Tennessee, so we did a lot of, like, mind share there. But we also, like, love each other in a really intense way. It's, like, very interesting. So I think That's if we awesome. could all have like, I know it's, it's a little wild. I, I think if we could have like a quarterly summit or something, we probably would just because it's, you know, it's just so great to be in touch with people and share ideas, but collaborative. Yeah, a brand ambassador life. life can be really lonely, right? It can be a very lonely totally. life and you can feel yes. kind of isolated. So to be able to share your ideas with other people and get feedback, I think is really essential. And listen, actually, yeah. Kitty, one of your biggest responsibilities is sales. And can you tell me some, I don't, did you bring the article, the, the brand ad? Because she said the ad for the like oh, the position was really, the, it was really wild. Like it I just said like sales it. and big bold letters, and then there was yeah. like the ten philosophies, ten <laughs> ten principles. Yeah, I I, principles. I didn't bring the I didn't bring the job description because I couldn't find it. I was taken down because we must have filled the position. But I will say it was it was basically like a, a brand ambassador or brand advocate, brand steward, whatever position description that would look familiar to you guys. Certainly. So, you know, the KPIs are similar across the board, like menu placements, uh, trainings, ride with things like that. And then it was also these 10 guiding principles, the first of which is we do it with excellence or we don't do it at all. I mean, I can read them all or I can just not. We can share them. Pick, pick a few. <laughs> oh, pick a few. Okay. Every day we pound the rock, which is, I had to like look that up. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I was like, pavement. I know, I was like, is this a Like, I don't know. But it's, it's to your point, a similar analogy as the watering, right? So every day we pound the rocks, but like, and it's, it's such a cool principle because the idea is that like, imagine like a master sculptor or whatever, carving something out of stone and like every, you know, they have a beautiful Michelangelo at the earth. David, Statue of David at the end. But on the way, there's lots of tiny little rock pounding that is happening, right? So, and each is as important as the beautiful sculpture in the finish. So once you get to the beautiful sculpture at the end, yes, we celebrate, but you have to celebrate the little rock poundings, right? And it's a beautiful, it's nice because you can, you know, all those moments that you have when you do brand pitch or, you know, like a meeting with a buyer and they're just like, eh, and you walk out and maybe it took you an hour to get there and it's hot and you're sweaty and you don't know what to do and you just feel sad. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you can like have a moment where you're like, okay, this still counts. Like I'm still, yeah. you know, cause that this might be your best count in two years. Like you just, that sort of yeah. faith coming through is cool. So, you know, they say, we say all opinion, all team members opinions are welcome. The more we know, the more we have yet to learn is one of them. We speak life, we speak light. <laughs> it's just like, what is this like? What does what that mean? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That it's is just so more, you know. Sounds very philosophical. Like, yeah, like, yeah. Out there you can in the imagine. Well, 
But for you, I mean, yeah. the sales part was that, I mean, it, sales is definitely really important, obviously, for being a brand ambassador. You know, it's not part of everybody's role. Like, I know for William Grant, it's not their main focus. Like, being the brand advocate and the brand personality is more of their role. Okay. You know, and obviously, you're always kind of selling in some way. But for you, like, selling is something that you have to do. And you now how to do it a little bit more for the off-premise, you know. And, and this has been a big fear. A lot of people in the industry, they're like, premise like I've never approached the off premise I guess I guess the question I ask is like what do you you find is the biggest challenge when selling to the off premise I think for me personally I can only speak to myself is just the it's truly the intimidation factor and I'm gonna speak plainly like it is like most of the off premise in Massachusetts at least is owned by an older white man, right? <laughs> We've all had this approach. And and Massachusetts, we are, we're, New York is probably very similar. We're not like, hey, honey, come on in. You know, some people yeah. are. You're <laughs> like, nope. You might be nope. interrupting somebody. Like, they yeah. might be pissed because the Red Sox lost. Like, all those kind of things. So I think that, but I also have years and years of tough skin, you know, building, working in restaurants and stuff like that. So I think sometimes the sort of, like, getting past this idea of, making an intro to someone who could intimidate me for any any variety of reasons once I can get through that like it's 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 just building a relationship right and like these people are the same as buyers and like if you can figure it's the same as like presenting to a bar manager like you figure out what time is there people are there what is a good time for them to show up things like that you know don't interrupt folks when they're trying to do their inventory and stuff like that just the basic basic basics and if you can build that relationship the other thing too is maybe even more so than in bars like folks that own liquor stores like it, they might have owned it for 30 years mm-hmm. and like their dad might have opened it after pre or after prohibition like so it's it's kind of cool you know like if you if you make that relationship it can go on and on and on and stuff so it just takes a lot maybe, longer to talk to them right sometimes because they're just like sometimes. yeah they, they, they don't always yeah. crack it's not like hey how no. are you my name's you know my name's Elaine you know nice to meet you and they're like uh-huh yeah <laughs> and you're like and they might just want right. to talk to you yeah yeah and I really yeah. I really rely on the distributor a lot I've learned to rely on the distributor guidance in terms of like the, you think of it like the distributor also a lot of these folks have worked for anywhere from 10 15 20 30 years with the same customers right so just kind of relying on the cues that they can give about like what's a good time and whom to see and like what to expect and stuff like that is has helped me a lot right i don't know yeah, and then you there are definitely things- pick your sales rep brains like hey, who, what am i walking into what kind of person is he what is the information or she or they or want to hear like you know, do they drink, not drink, you know, yeah. uh, do they want the TV? Like, what, what do they want? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and it's nice to visit with them, too, because usually, like, you know, it's just, it's just, it's really, really nice. What I actually, do you do when you pop into a liquor store and visit? Is it just like, hey, and you walk right. around the store and you just, like, check in with them for five minutes? Like, it's much shorter. It's yeah. much faster, right? It's just like, It's hey, so fast. Can... Yeah. Yeah, you can do 10 yeah. accounts in a day. Not, I mean... Don't tell my boss because then he'll be, I don't know. No, my boss is amazing. <laughs> but the it's the same, like half the time, it's just the same as it would be in a bar. You're just not sitting down and drinking, right? So you're asking about their kid. You're bullshitting about the Red Sox. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And just checking in how are things selling, you know, what's selling, mm-hmm. what's not selling, which I think, yeah, no, that's what I've heard. It's, it's, and I, I've done it myself. I had to do it for one of my clients when 
They were very kind, an RTD client of mine. I just signed, and I'm sure this is a story that many people had before the pandemic. I, I was going into like my best year ever. I just signed like three new clients and I'm on retainer. I was like, this is gonna be an awesome year. And like then the pandemic hit and my one client is from a company called Two Chicks. And she was so kind. She's like, Lana, I really want to continue working with you. You know, we had to change the working structure. She's like, all right, what can we do? So we're like off-premise, right? Off-premise doing well. So she gave me the list of all the off-premise accounts. And I would spend like two or three days, like at least three hours a day, just calling accounts, being like, yeah. So mine is like, like, are you open right now? Like, have you heard of the brand? Do you carry RTDs? And I was like, just getting right. And they were, most people were like, had nothing else to do it. So they were just talking to me and yes. like, drop off samples. You know, when's a good time? And I was like, this is such a good approach. I'm like, we should always do it. Like, yes. you know, I was able to find out when the buyer was. I went when they were mm-hmm. a good time to drop off samples, like, you know, what are the products they had? You know, you have to call obviously before they get busy, just like a bar, like don't call after three because you know, that's when their stores start getting busier. Don't call on Thursday yeah. and Fridays because people are leaving for work earlier. You know, you start to find out the same hours, but I found that was a great approach. And then yeah. I could just send the information to my sales rep or if, if they were open, I would go and, and drop off samples or whatever it was. But yeah, it, it just, you just have to work it a little bit differently which is a lot of fun. Did you have to, Camille, did you have to do any off-premise at all? Like, do you ever have to work in that world? Well, I had never done it before until we were forced to launch our brand in a pandemic, (laughs) you know? Uh, (laughs) Kitty was just saying about the timing and, and I'm so thankful for sort of, really getting to understand the off-premise a lot more because our our previous brands were really built on the on-premise. So I didn't work with the off-premise a lot previously. I didn't know it very well. This experience of really sort of coming to appreciate our our different audiences was really, really, really valuable. You know, because we launched Avasolo in May. So we had been shut down for about two months. And it sort of, you know, changes the dynamic when you when you have to go in and sort of build a brand new brand that nobody's ever heard of in a category that is barely exists, that is, you know, Mexican ancestral corn whiskey. But what I love is that the appointments are much earlier than the on-premise. Yes. That's pretty <laughs> exciting. You get to start your day and go hit a bunch of accounts really early. And a lot of them, you know, really don't see many brand people versus the on-premise. So they're really excited. When a brand person comes in and wants to support, buy a few bottles or talk about the brand, buy a, a bottle to, you know, to crack and have a tasting, they really, really appreciate it. And we started doing during the pandemic also these like virtual tastings with some of our retail partners, which were amazing. And I, I mm-hmm. found, you know, I totally agree with Kitty. I found that a lot of them are really excited to learn and mm-hmm. super yeah. stoked to have, you know, our ambassadors and our master distillers and that sort of thing. So I, I, uh, it's definitely another side of the business that I got to knew, know because of that experience. And I will never take it for granted, you know, mm-hmm. again. No, I, I, I think that's all both really leads me to such great points. It, you know, it really is. It, it is an eye-opening experience. You know, they are, you know, different personalities and types. And, and sometimes they don't come across as they want to have, you know, they want to learn anything. But after you spend some time talking to them, they're like, you're like, ah, you do care a little bit about whiskey. So let me yeah. just tell you a few, like a little bit, like enough. Like, so I know you don't want to hear about my fermentation process or the aging process, you know, but I'm going to give you just enough 
so that you could sell this brand if somebody asked about it like that and they're like excited and sometimes if they do drink sometimes a lot of them don't people don't drink their own liquor stores they are they, they're really happy to see you and sometimes they're just bored and they're just so happy someone came in and said hi yeah, <laughs> so it's yes. the, the, those those sure, times yeah. like that's the big thing no, that, that was really great. All right. So let's talk about also, Kitty, so you just had something really exciting happen. The brand, the Uncle Nearest Distillery and Visitor Center just opened. So what was it like to be there for your team? And like, what do people expect when you go down? Like, is it open? Is it ready to roll? Yeah. I know it's open. Yeah, like, so I'll tell you, visit? Yes. I'll tell you what to expect first. So we bought a distillery. So we actually own the original house and farmhouse where a young Jack Daniel would have been taught to distill by Uncle Nearest. It's our property, which is wow. strange. It was for sale and fun. We were bought it. That's a whole separate story. Very, very cool, but very immediately clear that it was not going to be scalable to do a distillery there. So Fawn bought a 270-acre Tennessee walking horse farm in Shelbyville, wow. Tennessee, which is between, I would say it's about an hour from Nashville, so a little bit closer than Lynchburg, and has it has... It's so beautiful. So it's huge. It's beautiful. You drive up, you pull up, you're going to find horses like lounging in the pasture. There were two cute little foals like napping on the grass because uh, they kept the Tennessee. Yes, they're keeping the Tennessee walking horses. Uh, there is a, a beautiful welcome center, tasting room, like a, a merch area with so much cool merch. Like if you're an Uncle Nera super fan, you have to go because I can't even begin to tell you like everything from like beach towels to shirts to like a branded like vintage truck. Very, very cool. There's also a non-alcoholic speakeasy called Philo and Frank's, which is named for his parents. I know. So interesting. So Fawn's parents were teetotalers and we really want the, wow. the whole distillery experience to be like a hang, you know, like a place where you can go and not just be a whiskey aficionado, but someone who wants to relax and chill with your family. So that's really, really cool. And there's some really great story involved with that speakeasy. It's, it's, it's supposed to look like a, an old soda fountain basically. Mm -hmm. And it tells the story of Tennessee prohibition, some cool Tennessee history, as well as women's history, because a lot of the suffragettes, a lot of the pro early prohibition activists were women. So it, it threads a needle in a very, very cool way. I learned a lot in that room. There's also, I don't know if you've been to Nashville and seen the Angel Wings, but yes. what, what gives you, yeah, I have, I'd heard about them, but I'd never seen them. So They're Kelsey the Montague is that artist. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So she, you see them as like when a, you walk into the town and you see like, I've taken pictures in between them. Like, yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. So we have one of those on the property, which is amazing. So you can do an Uncle Nearest photo there. And then we also have a really cool family tasting room where everybody who's worked on the team, to everybody who's worked on the brand from the beginning and ongoing will have their picture. And that was a really cool thing because Fawn, Fawn says that, that that was born out of her going to distilleries and seeing sort of wall of fame type stuff and having it just be this, people with the same, you know, older white men. <laughs> Yeah, you know, so, and that when I learned about that, that my picture was going to be somewhere involved in this, I was just so moved because that's something that I can send my nieces to and my yeah, you know, that's they get so sweet. stuff like that. It's really, really cool. So oh, there's also amazing barbecue. So Barrel House Barbecue, which has which is located in Lynchburg, there's they have an outpost distillery as well. So definitely go. Like, can you drink in that county or is it a dry county? You can drink in Shelbyville. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's always been that always. It freaks you out. It's like you go to county and like, I'm sorry, yeah. you can't drink here. Like, yeah, there's still dry counties wow. in, in Tennessee. Yeah, so wild. So it, wild. it is a very wild. But I, I love Camille. Have you been down to Nashville? Have you been to any other town? I've been there twice. Yes, it's a really, really cool bar town. Love eating there and drinking. 
Yeah, so no, it's great. It, it, is, it is a lot of fun. Well, Kitty, I look forward. So are you going to start doing like trips down there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we'll have, there's tours and then there's also, I think there's going to be like an industry focused tour. I'm not sure what the timeline is. I'm getting that up and, that up and running, but if, you mm-hmm. know, people want to keep in touch with me, I can try to make sure that they get on those, which will be a little bit more intimate and in depth. And then I'll be actually right before the pandemic happened, we were about to pop off in Boston. I was going to bring a tour down from Massachusetts and then Victoria was coming to the market. It was the whole thing. So sadly, I was not able to go, but I think there will be like market trips for bartenders. If anybody's a bartender in there, wherever you are in the corners of the U.S. watching, then certainly you can touch with us because that's an awesome That's, that's very, there. very cool. I, I, I'm, I'm excited mm-hmm. to see that. And now I want to talk about, Camille, like one of the great conversations we had yesterday is, you know, you said you work for a woman senior executive, kind of like mm-hmm. Katie works for an entire female executive team. And, you know, she provided to you some, you know, valuable lessons. And I think this, this one particular one you said, I think is something a lot of us probably need to hear. And it's about not getting caught up in the minutia. Like, can you expand on that? Like, why she told you that? And like, how you now put that practice into use? How I worked on changing my chip? <laughs> So basically, you know, I think we, for those of us who have a similar, you know, trajectory where we started off as bartenders, I think being a bartender is all about the details. It's all about your planning and your mise en place and then your execution and your clothes and everything in between. And then you move up to management and you really have this incredible ingrained skill where you have this relatability because you've done the job before, but you have to oversee it. And when you move into ambassadorship, I I really consider the role of an ambassador as, you know, such an important connector of everything, connector of teams, connector of trade, of distributor, of, you know, consumer. And when we're going to execute an event, you know, some, some things that we always talk about with our team is we should think about, you know, one, engaging in hiring trade to help 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 us out and sort of help execute mm-hmm. cocktails. I know that we all want to bartend, but if we're all bartending, we can't oversee sort of the bigger picture of the event. And the same goes to, you know, right now when what I'm doing is I have, I had to get comfortable sort of delegating. And I also want the team to feel like I felt with Montelobos where they're helping to write that story and where they're sort of giving their own ideas and their own initiatives to the brand. And it's sort of becoming a little bit of theirs because I know I felt for many years that Montelobos was my brand, even though I knew that it came out of Ivan Saldana's mind. I was like, no, but the Wolfhau is mine, you know, but, but the Wolfpack <laughs> is mine. And I think it's really important to be able to recognize when things have reached a cycle and you're able to make room and let things go to welcome something in new. Uh, we can only do that by sort of changing our chip, coming, bringing our, our mindset a little bit more top top line and being able to see the bigger picture. And I think the, the sort of other layer to that is, you know, going back to what we were saying earlier about doing more thoughtful marketing and just working in the spirits industry in general is how can we look at our proposals through a 360 lens where, you know, we have thoughtful PR and thoughtful social media. And, and that really means, you know, getting out of the details and seeing it sort of from a bird's eye view. 
No, I think that is really, it is, it is really hard because you said coming from the bartending world and coming from, you know, just doing even like events, you do get kind of caught up in the little things and you want to be part of it because you want to execute it all. And having that top line vision can sometimes be really hard because seeing, and that's, you know, one of the things I, I also learned on the trick of Kitty Fit's same spirit. When I started working more with, with brand teams or brand managers, because it can also be frustrating as when you're a brand ambassador and you might not be aware of this, like why, why is the brand manager seem to be focused on this other thing? Like, why are they talking about this? Like, we have to care about that. And it's like this tiny little detail that you're so focused on. Like, you know, we need to have more wolf hats or whatever it is. And it's really small. And they're thinking of the bigger picture. Like, yeah, we know, but you know, we also only have a budget for this much. And this is like the bigger, broader view that we have to look at. And here's their whole perspective. So, you know, a lot of the conversations we've had on here is like, you know, learning to be like, before I get frustrated about something, I really need to sit in the room with my brand managers to understand the big picture. What's the five-year plan? You know, what's the one-year plan? So that when I'm pitching events or ideas, I have that in my mind. So they have the big picture view. I might come on a smaller, but I need to think big. They'll, they'll help me think bigger. Like, hey, I have this great idea. How do I think of it on a bigger scale? And can you help me work through that? And making it scalable, which is something that learning how to do that. It's a word I had to learn as I got more advanced in my career. I was like, ah, scalable and, and, you know, creating a project plan and breaking it out into small, you know, I was like, I understand that now. Um, it, it and keeping us legal too, helpful. bringing yes, our ideas to life in a legal way, which is another big one. That is another, but yeah, it's like, why can't we do this? such a cool idea? And then you pitch it and you're like, yeah, it's totally not legal. We've, we've all been there. That's definitely one of the biggest frustrations. Yeah, we're going to get arrested and our brand's going to get fined. Actually, last week we were discussing, and oh my God, I'm having a complete brain fart. Who's on my show last week. And I, listen, I watched it earlier. Cam and Ms. Zimmerman. Zimmerman, Jordan Zimmerman. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I had a complete brain fart. Jordan Zimmerman. And Jordan did have a really interesting idea. I highly recommend. I actually put it up just a nine-minute segment of that on my Instagram feed, which was, you know, how she helped streamline the process for, you can't do it for everything, but for events that are happening all the time, like very similar style events, how you can streamline the process to get it approved by legal. So she just created a form, like she worked with her Google teams. Yeah, it's, it, you have to listen to it. It's really smart. Like they worked with somebody in IT to create a form. So like if X equals, you know, Y, then this is the result. So like they were able to plug in all the common questions that legal will always ask you. Oh, so you awesome. ask them, you answer them up front so that, yeah. you know, when they push back, it might just be one thing instead of like 17 other questions, you've already answered all the questions and everybody fills yeah. up the same form. And I'm yeah. like, it's so ingenious. And it was like, she worked with her IT team to create the form so that these things like these people are always CC'd. So, if, you know, if you plug in Uncle Nearest in events mm -hmm. and it's like off premise, there might be something that always needs to know and it automatically, that's the yes. So if X equals Y, then this will happen. These three people get CC'd always that that happened. So it automated things. It was very ingenious. A little yeah, off topic right. from what we were talking about, but <laughs> I want to add that in there. Love it. Um, no, I think it's a really great thing. All right. So we're going to talk about, because we're getting into the, the 315 hour and I know you ladies are very busy. So... So two last questions. So one is, there is definitely that, and we talked about it a little bit before, everybody I think has it. It's one of the biggest phobias that most people have expressed, which is, I'm not good enough. 
or I don't have, the, I, I'm not knowledgeable enough about the topic we are, are speaking about, especially when presenting to the trade. Like that's everybody's like panic. Like everybody talks about like, I, whenever I go to present to my peers, I get really nervous that somebody's going to know yeah. that I don't know all the answers. So, you know, and, and Camille, I know you touched about this before about presenting with the expert of the brand and Kitty. So I'm going to Kitty then Camille, I'd love you to like wrap that up into a, a bow. What are some things you do? Like, how do you overcome that? Because it's hard. I know I experience it. I mean, I, so I started reading my own bio over before out to myself aloud because there's just a lot of experience there. that was actually something I took from a women of the vine and spirits that's PR great course read your own damn bio because gay is what <laughs> it's got a, lot, a lot of good there. stuff and yeah yeah and I, I tend to practice prepare and over prepare like I like to work a lot on my notes and things like that and then but beyond that it's just like spiritual emotional work <laughs> like, honestly like therapy and meditation and just like constantly working because a lot of like self-image stuff is mine that I carry. Like it has nothing to do with this work. It's just, it's different stuff. So I think mm-hmm. devoting time to, to that kind of stuff. And then, you know, if someone's not going to play nice at some point, you just have to walk away and like understand they probably weren't going to play nice in the first place. Like <laughs> you that don't is, have time. That is, <laughs> that is very true. And you can't, we talked about it before, you can't always be the expert, right? So sometimes you no. just got to own your piece and like what you are an expert at. And sometimes I'm just humble. I'm just like, Listen, this is what I know. This is from my own experiences. This is what I've done. This is the places I've been. This is the books I've read. This is the knowledge. And if I make mistakes somewhere along the line, possible, and I mess up mess up a date or something, you know, please later on, please let me know. I always love to learn. You know, don't call me out in the middle of my presentation. <laughs> that will yeah. throw me off. And that's not yeah. a, it's a dick, that's a dick move. But Camille, you were talking about, like, I think about it is a dick move, that you, you know, embraced a different part of it. You, you embrace like your own, you find your own personality. Yeah. One of my closest friends, Jaime Salas, who's a tequila ambassador, years veteran. He, the first time he saw me present years ago to the distributor, he said, you know, that was great. The information was really good, but I didn't see you. I didn't see your personality because I was nervous. It was my first time presenting in front of a hundred New York distributors and you know that they can be very and very much an intimidating group. So that at that moment, I sort of understood this is exactly what I need to do. I need to tell this story, but bring what I bring to the table out to them. And I need to set the tone with that. So, you know, if my sort of creativity and personality needs to come out at the beginning as a first impression, come out in the first thing. And this sort of became my signature when I got really comfortable in it was I started off the training, walked into the room and started howling, howling like, yeah. <laughs> you know, and like, what is this? This is insane. What is she doing? And, you know, they started howling together. And then I would say some recite a mezcal saying in Spanish and sort of break the ice. And then you get to that point right off the bat where they feel comfortable with you. They're getting loose. And then you just start And the other thing is, I think we should take every experience like an opportunity for a lesson, right? There's tons of stuff that Yvonne would have probably answered better than me. He has a PhD in agave. I don't, you know, Mm -hmm. but every single time I didn't know an answer, I would be honest and, you know, let them know that I would find out. And at each time I would present after that, I would know a little bit more, you know, Mm -hmm. so towards the end of my ambassadorship on that brand, I felt really comfortable owning 
a brand training on the category or on my brand story with my little flair. So I think it's about setting the tone with what we bring to the table as individuals. No, I think that, that those are both great lessons. I, I do believe in the mental preparation as well and reading your own bio because sometimes it is like you don't know where you're at until you know where you've been, right? That's the, the yeah. saying, right? So looking back sometimes, it's an exercise I did in a, in a woman's course that I took, which was like right here, like everything you've ever achieved in your entire life from the time you were like born. Like everything. She's just still writing through. it. <laughs> yeah, you're still, you're still writing it. And, and to look back, because it is sometimes you're like, fuck, I have done a lot. Because you forget. You forget a lot of the things that you've achieved and done because yeah. you just get focused on that one moment and you're like, I'm not enough. And it's like, actually, I am a lot. And to your point, Camille, like bringing it all together and owning what it is, bringing your own personality. It was something that it took me a long time to, to own that and, and be okay. It's like, okay, I'm not going to be technical. I'm not that person because I, that's not exciting to me. And, and bringing that. And then if you do make a mistake or don't know something, as you said, it's okay. Just be like, you're right. I, I don't know that. But remember it for next time so that you keep yeah. building. Because eventually you will own it. The more you do it, what's a 10,000 hour rule, the, the better you will get yeah. and comfortable you will be. All right. So we're going to wrap this up with this question I always ask everybody. So you've both been working in this industry for a long time. We've all either either mistakes you've made that you've learned from that you want to share and say, hey, this is something I had to learn the hard way. Don't do this. Or it could also be a more of a thing of like, here's an insider tip that I'm aware of that many people know and I love sharing with other people. So you can pick Kitty. You want to go first? Yeah, sure. I had so I, I had a few like specific incidents that came up to mind, but I ended up scaling back a little bit because I wanted to share the nugget like the essence of it. So my two, so one was blending my personality into my work in a role where I was ultimately replaceable. So you can all chew on that, but thinking about, I don't want to name the brand specifically, but I've done this a few times actually, where I've kind of just dove right in and I was Kitty. The brand is my last name. You can call me Kitty Unclearest. I don't care, but like (laughs) it became so much part of my identity. And then when I was no longer with that brand for whatever reason, I felt lost or depressed or just, just, I felt like a part of me was no longer. And and the fact is that like, you know, in a corporate structure, you, you know, sometimes you're more replaceable than you realize you are. I'll just leave it like Mm -hmm. that. (laughs) Uh, So I just think boundaries are good. Like boundaries are good. And that's something I'm working on in all areas of my life. So, you know, we'll see. It's a, it's a 500 level class for this girl. <laughs> no, I think it's more because we all talked about the yeah. fact that we become really attached to our brands. Camille, you mentioned it in Montalobos. It, you know, felt part of you. Like Diageo was, I, I, I in my mind, I was Diageo. They were me yeah. and like, I worked for them and I was so darn loyal to them. Like, and it was yes. retarded. Like, Philippi City yes. is like, Elaine, you don't work for them. Like, they are not, like, you're replaceable. Like, if you leave, and he was never so right. It was heartbreaking. When I left, nobody cared. Yes. It was just like, I've been there for almost 17 years. And it was like, okay. Like, I mean, a few people called and, you know, whatever. But it wasn't like, and I did the dumbest thing here about being replaceable. I replaced myself. I brought in April Watchtel. Yeah, uh, yeah. Because I'm so freaking loyal to the company. Yeah. So I was like, I don't want to leave mm-hmm. you in the lurch. And we were in the middle of a project and I, I got recruited mm-hmm. to Anheuser-Busch. That's why I was leaving because it was like double my salary and it was a much bigger mm-hmm. role. I was like, I have to take this opportunity. It's an amazing opportunity right. to be a global manager. 
and I replaced myself with April and it was like, all right. And it was like, nothing ever changed. It was like, she just took the ball. She's so good. And just rolled There's with no it. And I'm like, pain I should have let him hurt like... just a little. I should have let him hurt just a little bit. You know? <laughs> That was dumb. That was really dumb. I mean, I'm really grateful because for April, because for April, it really has helped her, her in and around projects. So, okay. and she's always like, Elaine, I really appreciate the fact you did that. But yeah, that was dumb. That's hysterical. <laughs> That's hysterical. Okay. Kim, Camille? Yeah. Well, my mine also intertwines a little bit with what Kitty said. And it's, I wish that I hadn't taken things so personally when I was, you know, working directly with Montalobos. And it's sort of a lesson that now I don't, I take every opportunity of feedback as an opportunity to think more strategically and understand how I can be even better to sort of reach the goals that I'm trying to reach with the brand or the team or the company. But it really used to affect me. I, t- I really took things to heart and felt like they were a direct reflection of me. And it's really not about that. It's about so many other moving parts. And then I guess just a fun one that uh, through ambassadorship, you learn over time, which I learned a lot from watching Charlotte because she was so great at the balance and about getting up at 5, 6 a.m. and working out, not drinking on a school night. The last three tales, I learned my lesson and I knew that I could not drink until maybe the next to last or the last night because we had numerous a crazy oh, amount of events and 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 my energy you know affected my output my levels of energy really affected the way mm-hmm. that I did my job so that's something that we just learn with with time so no absolutely it, it is a big one and it's not easy because you're especially it's something like tails or BCB, you're, you're mm-hmm. caught up in the energy and you want to have a good time but yeah I, mm-hmm. I've learned you know and I've always tried to get my seminars scheduled like the first day like, put me on Wednesday, put me on Tuesday, <laughs> just so I can get it done. Because until my seminar is happening, yeah, I'm in bed every yeah. night by, like, 11, and, like, I'm not really, you know, out. And I'm like, nope, got to get up early, got to get those done. And I just want to get them out of the way. Like, totally. let's just get them done so I can just relax after that and, and have a good time. Totally. I think those are really, really wise words. Well, ladies... This was fantastic. It was so much fun getting to catch up with both of you. I hope you had fun as well. And this will stay on Facebook for the next two weeks. And then it lives on my brand, my Duck on the Rocks website, as well as there's a YouTube channel called Celebrating Brand Ambassadors. So it lives up there uh, forever until the day. But uh, this was great. And I, I really enjoyed this a lot. And I look forward to seeing both of you in person sometime soon. Well, thank you so much. It was so fun. Oh, my gosh. I can talk to you all day, guys. Cheers. Cheers. All right, ladies. Have a great rest of the day. Bye. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Thank you for tuning in. Again, this is your host, Elaine Duff. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Celebrating the Brand Ambassador. If you did, please do me a solid. Hit subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts leave an excellent review and share on your social media. Also follow me at Duff on the Rocks to tune in to the live version of these shows every other week on Facebook and say hi or get a question answered by one of our guests. Lastly, if you want to learn more about my online Brand Ambassador Academy or to sign up for one-on-one coaching, head to my website, DuffOnTheRocks.com or BeverageBA.com. Until next time, this girl is out and an ice cold martini is calling my name. Cheers, everyone.